brief introduction and then we'll get started. Hey everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, I'm so excited because today is the 1700th episode of Chef AJ Live. Who knew that when I first broadcasted live on March 20th, 2020, 20, that I'd be doing this for almost four years and 1700 episodes. So I'm really excited that my guest today is one of my favorite doctors. He's a plant-based cardiologist. He's eloquent, he's passionate, and he's smart too. His name is Dr. Columbus Batiste, and he's going to be answering the questions that you've sent in in advance. And we're going to start with a really uh, important one that there seems to be a lot of confusion about whether alcohol is good for your heart. Please welcome Dr. Batiste to the show. Thanks for doing this. I know that you're in the car because your power in the house went out. That's why we're starting a little late. So I appreciate uh, you going with the old adage, the show must go on. That's right. It must go on. You know, I mean, listen, <laughs> life is about adjusting, right? Isn't that, that's what we have to adjust on the fly always. And so you were right. Let's just get at it and let's do it. So, car, I'm not driving, just in case anyone out there is worried. I'm not driving and talking. I have a chauffeur today, my son. Oh, well, thank your son very much for, for doing this. So, you know, and, and I think people know who you are, but if you want to tell them, you know, I, last time I saw you was at the Plantrician Conference. You gave an amazing talk. You, I never saw you in a suit before. <laughs> I know. Usually it's always scrubs, right? No. So it's, you know, it's always a pleasure. I mean, we go back a while, but I, my name is Columbus Batiste. I'm an interventional cardiologist, which means my job is to help restore the blood flow to the heart, to try to stop a heart attack from happening. And I believe the best way to do that is in the cath lab, or as I also call it, cooking alternative to health, where we cook as a means to opening up the vessels. And so I'm passionate about this. And so um, I love collaborating with Chef AJ. You know this. She's been such, all of you listening know how wonderful she is. Uh, so happy to be here. Oh, thank you so much. I, we, I, I was looking up the significance of the, of 1700 and, and to see if there's like, a, you know, if it had some deep meaning, but um, I, I, we can talk about that in a second, but let's talk about alcohol there. You know, I mean, I, I respect the work of everyone in this space, but there's a lot of people in this space that are, some are doctors and some aren't that really say that alcohol is good for us, but there's a whole faction of doctors that say, Hey, you know, if you want to drink, you can, but it's not the Holy grail of health, especially with cardiac health. So what do you think about it? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I simplify everything in life, you know, so when I'm in at work and in practice, I, I say our goals are to help patients live longer and feel better. That's it, simply. And so is it accomplishing that? When I look in the realm of lifestyle, our practices, they're either adding to our resiliency or adding to our stress, which leads to adverse health events. And when you look at alcohol as a whole, what we understand is that it does contribute significantly to poor health outcomes. It contributes to cancer. It contributes to cardiomyopathy or reduced heart function. We know that it can increase risk of arrhythmias. It can increase risk of high blood pressure. And so we can dig into that a little bit in terms of what precisely I mean by that, why there's different thoughts in terms of the studies overall. Um, but so essentially I say that this is not really adding to your health, which means I don't recommend it on a regular basis for individuals to do it or at all. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, people will say, oh, but red wine has, I never say that word, resveratrol, you know, resveratrol. Yeah. yeah. 
But don't yeah. don't grapes. No, I love grapes actually. So I eat a lot yeah, of grapes and seeds and nuts. You know, they they have resveratrol. I mean, here's the thing: when most of these studies are observational studies, they're observational studies inside of individuals for the most part over the age of 55 and are Caucasian males. So it doesn't look at women. It's not looking at different uh, uh, ethnic groups as well. And when you start to really par down those studies, some of those observational studies, some of which, not all, a few have been funded by alcohol companies, you start to realize that it's not the same outcome, that we see a difference inside of Asians, inside of African-Americans, inside of women, inside of the South Asian population as well. And so it starts to say that it's not one size that fits all, that this low alcohol consumption is beneficial for you of red wine or, 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 or drinks, mixed drinks or beer. And recently, there's been growing evidence in 2022 really showing that even small amounts increases this risk. Everything we do either adds to our, uh, our health, our, our wellness, or our illness. And so we're seeing this um, as, a, as, as a part of it. You know, it's, it, is, it is October. It is Breast Cancer Menopause Awareness Month. And we understand the impact of alcohol and breast cancer, too, as well. So I think it's... it's it's advantageous. If our impression is we want to live a healthful life, then this is not something that's adding to our health. Now, whether or not it impacts you the same way um, as it impacts someone else from an adverse perspective, that may vary. That may vary by individual, same as food. But we understand, I, can, I feel comfortable in general terms in saying that alcohol is not beneficial to your overall health and wellness. Thank you. I remember now where I heard you say something about it. It was a few months ago on this show when you talked about um, men's sexual health with Dr. Quinton V. Cancel, and that that if that is something that a man is interested in, that it actually can be a deterrent, not an enhancement. (laughs) That's right. So, I mean, you know, listen, what's important to men? Sexual function, right? And so most people think, oh, okay, I'm going to go out to a club or wherever it is. And I'm going to have, you know, a couple of drinks and, and I'm going to be more attractive and have fun. And actually it's going to impair and impede your sexual performance. But not just that, we also know that it impedes your, your sleep, your rest. So which we understand has such a domino effect. So yes, you will become more sedated, but your sleep cycle becomes broken. And you're not going to have carry on the same level of good REM sleep that's going to activate your parasympathetic tone, dilate your vessels, lower your blood pressure, and restore your body as a whole. Thank you. Well, let's jump right. Oh, you know, you mentioned observational studies. What does that mean exactly? What are what maybe briefly, what are the different kinds of studies and which are the most beneficial? Yeah. So, I mean, it kind of starts out the one that we talk about that is least um, uh, uh, scientific are going to be case reports, which means, hey, just what my experience is for one or two or 10 patients. Then you have observational studies, which says that I'm going to just track the trends over time and see, look at a group of people and there could be, and I'm going to ask them um, after the fact about multiple variables um, and just try and assign what happens to them. Do they have more heart attacks or strokes, whatever it is. Then I'm, and that's a form of a retrospective too as well, where I saw A prospective is an ongoing observation. A retrospective is a form of observation that's looking backwards. Then I have a trial where I say I'm taking two groups and I'm looking at what happens to them, one of which I may do an intervention, which means I may put them on a whole food, no salt, no oil, sugar-free, plant-based diet compared to another group that allow to say the same. 
one that, as side note, I know we're talking about alcohol, but the one say I love, and this one will probably uh, trigger with you, is say looking at humor. And what they did was they took two groups of individuals who had sustained major cardiac events, heart attacks and bypass surgery, and put them through rehab. You know, the rehab that Dr. Ornish has spoken about and others, exercise, stress reduction, nutrition, and so forth. But here's what they did as the intervention. One group, they said, you need to listen to something that's funny for 30 minutes every day. It could be Chef AJ. It could be your favorite comedian. It could be your favorite uh, comedy show. And let's just see what happens. And to surprise of no one, the group that listened to the comedy and they laughed, they had a lower burden of chest discomfort, less likely to be admitted to the hospital, less likely to have recurrent events here, the power of laughter. And so that's what SAIS will do is they'll take one small change, keeping everything else the same, trying to match the age, match the other um, baseline underlying uh, risk factors, high blood pressure, diabetes, and see what happens. And it gives us a suggestion that this has a therapeutic intervention. It still may not tell us exactly the mechanism, but it tells us that there is some value and we look to see is it statistically significant. So that's uh, an example of a therapeutic trial that's looking at more of a, a prospective interventional uh, uh, study. Right. Are you, did you ever read anatomy, what was it called? Anatomy of an Illness, Norman Cousins, how he cured. Yes. I love that yes. because if they're even show like it activates your, like if you have cancer, it activates the cells that fight yes. cancer. That's what I think I really think laughter is the best medicine. So thank you. And we'll start with the questions that have been sent in by our live viewers. Carol says, Dr. Batiste, after many years of being almost low fat plant-based, I never know what almost means. I went on a tiny <laughs> dose of statin, which got my LDL to a very low level. Is there such a thing as too low? And should one ever consider going off it? So when it comes to cholesterol, great question. So what we're finding more and more and more is the fact the lower, the better. Actually, in the European Society of Cardiology, they look at your, your LDL being less than 55, as opposed to in, in America, the States, we look at less than 70. And so that's for individuals who's, who've had some sort of event. What we know in general is that when we look at cholesterol, the best analogy is this one, is that we check cholesterol. We're checking, like, for instance, if I have a beach ball, a beach ball is not going to cause you much harm. But if I throw a baseball at you, or a golf ball, it's going to hurt like nobody's business. That's like your, your LDL cholesterol. There's different types of cholesterol that are larger and maybe less atherogenic. And you have the smaller ones, your apoprotein B, which is the carrier protein, your small dense LDL, all these variables that can cause major issues. And these are the smaller harmful ones. So our labs kind of get a generic perspective of it. And so it's important to look at the full picture, look at what your triglyceride to HDL ratio is. You want that less than about two to three to one, that's where you're gonna be beneficial. If it's above that, it tells us that your risk is higher. That if your C-reactive protein, because we understand coronary disease is really an inflammatory process that's there, it's a reflection of what is burning. And so maybe going partially, you're inflaming those fires <laughs> of atherosclerosis. And so you want to be very cognizant, cognizant of it and really inspect like what you're doing. So the answer is no, you can't go too low with it. Your body does need cholesterol, but your best, do, best job is to do it through your nutrition. Um, if you're able to accomplish that solely that way, if, you, if you've had an event, then having a, a really deep conversation with your provider about, do I have to consider anything else? Do you do any virtual appointments anymore, or is it only if people are within your, your system and where, where you live? 
So it's within my system, and I'll tell you my recent, I took on this past year an administrative role that essentially has taken me out of clinic at this point. Um, so I oversee all of Southern California for my medical group um, and, you know, the cardiovascular care. So that's taken up all of my time. And I just started that this January. So I'm actually no longer doing formal clinic. Oh, so that means not even your patients can see you, right? <laughs> Yeah, many of my patients, unfortunately, I was going in and still doing evening clinics just because there's a few who, you know, really wanted to stay on board and I would talk with them. And so now not so much. Um, I still go and volunteer and I'll do, uh, you know, challenges and immersions and help folks out that way as best as possible in my, my volunteer time. But I'm not doing any structured clinic any longer. Mm -hmm. Well, I bet your patients miss you. Okay, so Victoria says, I'd appreciate it if Dr. Columbus Batiste would answer my question. Can a whole food plant way of eating improve carotid, carotid arteries even at the age of 76? <laughs> it's a great question. So I think one thing we know is that it's not the age that you start, it's the amount of effort you put into it. And so we know that whether or not, here's the key thing, and there's a great study that was done recently of the Journal of American uh, College of Cardiology. And it wasn't looking specifically at the impact of plant-based nutrition, but it talked about regression of plaque, which is what you're talking, you're speaking to. Can we reduce the amount of plaque in an area through lifestyle or medications? And so both have been shown to be, to be able to accomplish this, that yes, you can lead to regression of atherosclerosis through your nutrition being very aggressive. And you say, well, okay, does it really matter if I only reduce it by 1% or 2%? Well, this is the wonderful part about this study is it showed that even small amounts, one, 2% was able to reduce the, the incidence of what we call major adverse cardiac events by 25, 30%. So we know it's that every small amount really matters. And so the answer to you uh, that I say to you is that, yes, it's possible. Is it guaranteed? I'd never say anything in life is guaranteed. But what I would tell you is that, is it possible? Yes, it's possible. You have to stay intentional, stay focused, and one, have the mindset of belief. Great. I had a lady come to me once that was 90, lost two of her children to lifestyle diseases, and she made it like another nine years. So, I, you know, I mean, what, no, no harm in trying, right? Not going to be any worse well, off. Listen. Another study, I wish I could take claim for this one myself, but I was ha having a conversation with some colleagues and they described someone who came in their 90s who had resistant hypertension. Blood pressure was so high, kept going to the emergency room over and over and over again. And, and every medication failed. And he put the patient on a whole, a no oil, no salt, a plant-based diet. And the wife was skeptical. This guy, all of a sudden his blood pressure began to normalize. <laughs> On it now. I'm not saying everyone's story like is going to be be the same as this, but was able to stop the ER visits, no longer having the symptoms, and coming off not all but the majority of his medications. So we talk about at any age, is it possible? It's absolutely possible. It's possible. Great, thank you. This question, um, the person is asking me to ask it anonymously. She says she has PCOS in her 40s and heard that it carries a higher risk for also having cardiovascular disease. She wants to know if you could comment on how risky it is to have this with a waist circumference over 35, an omega-3 index of 3.2, and a resting heart rate in the 80s. Mm. Yeah, you know, what I would tell you is that that suggests to me a, a, a smoldering metabolic syndrome. 
And so I will probably be willing to guess. And what metabolic syndrome is, is that when your waist circumference is, is a bit higher in women, when you have a little bit elevated triglycerides, when your blood sugar is just a little bit abnormal, when your blood pressure is just a little bit abnormal too as well, that all this stuff, it pretends a great deal of risk. So much so our cardiologists are starting to look at the burden of early menopause and, and the, the burden of, of, of different inflammatory conditions of rheumatoid arthritis and what that impact has on cardiovascular events. So you're absolutely correct. There is a risk that, that is that begins to happen. And so this is why it's even more important, right? That you really refine your diet and, and eat what Chef AJ ad advocates with having fruits and vegetables and whole grains, beans, legumes, and seeds for your omegas too as well. Um, the chia and the flax become important inside of there. And we understand the importance of it too as well, especially as we reach this menopausal state in terms of the power that it has in terms of giving you some estrogen, estrogen types of, of replacement. Um, and it can also, also help the body in terms of the metabolism. The calorie density is going to be a lot lower for you while the nutrient density is very high from these food components. Um, so it's something I strongly advocate and I typically work with. I'm actually <laughs> talking about little side uh, uh, scenarios. Someone right now, a friend that was referred to me from my wife, um, she just asked like, hey, what can I do? I'm suffering with this, that, and the other. She's at, at this point in life with menopause. And so I essentially put her on what we all talk about and advocate, a strong, intentional, therapeutic, whole food plant-based diet that focused on um, foods in their origin, minimally to no process. And to no one's surprise, she's lost almost 20 pounds within six weeks. She's feeling better. She's improving in terms of uh, her hot flashes and the other issues that uh, were surrounding with her on a personal level. And so there, there definitely is a possibility for you to get improvement with your parameters. Thanks. You know, she mentioned omega-3 index because the next question is on that as well. So maybe before I even ask the next question, you could say, what is the omega-3 index? So we're looking at the omega-3 to omega-6 ratios typically. And so the omega-6 is really kind of looking at all of these processed refined foods uh, and so forth that, that are out there in, in the animal products and, and the fried foods. And so, you know, we have to be very careful as we're looking at some of these foods that we're, that we're eating and really look at them from the perspective of what's going on. Give me one moment. I'm having some issues here in the parking lot. Oh my gosh. I can't answer these questions without him. So I'm hoping he comes back. Um, it's unfortunate that this happened today, but thanks guys for watching episode 1700. I'm curious what that means. And sometimes numbers have like deep meaning. So and um, if, you know, he has a regular show on this channel, the third Sunday of the month at nine o'clock, heart-to-heart uh, -heart conversations with Dr. Columbus Batiste. Usually he interviews a guest, but the questions have been piling up. So I think he can get to them. It's always good when you ask, um, I mean, obviously you like specific doctors to answer your questions and we do our best because we get hey. to, oh, he's back. Yay. Hey, sorry about that. No, thank you. So the, the, the next question from Paul is, on omega-3 index. And he says, as a cardiologist, what range of omega-3 index do you recommend? Some recommend above 8%, others above 5.5. On the blood test report, it says levels less than 3.7 carry a higher risk of sudden cardiac death. Is that true? What do you recommend to those eating a whole food plant-based diet? Yeah. So 
you know, I'll be honest. So that the the ratio is not something I use as part of my regular daily practice because my goal is to move folks away from the Western dietary uh, paradigm completely, right? And so using that as my premise and understanding that these ranges are just that they're arranged. So being on the low end of the range doesn't mean that you're 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 um, not at risk, right? So we know everyone is different. So I try and really push for maximal 100%. I think of it from the same way I, pre I would prescribe a traditional medication. I'm trying to treat you to a therapeutic goal. Of what is my question I'm answering? My question is, how can I prevent you from having a second and third and fourth cardiac event or a first event if you have a strong history or concerns that are there? And so by doing so, what is our intention every single day in terms of our nutrition? And are we accomplishing our goal in mind, which is with our plan? Our plan should be, listen, I have to stay hydrated like Chef AJ is drinking right now. My water intake has to be, I don't have strong evidence, but some extrapolate evidence in terms of sudden cardiac events. I know I need to remain active at least 30 minutes, a minimum, right? In terms of walking, moving around. I understand I need to try and improve my sleep. I need, I understand that in order for me to really achieve the benefits I need, I know that I need to have foods that are going to lower my cholesterol as demonstrated by the portfolio study, by demonstrated by the Adventist Health Study, looking at soluble and insoluble fibers, that I understand the power of nutrition to lower my blood pressure nearly 11 millimeters of mercury by adopting not even a, a, a whole food plant-based diet, that we get that there, right? So we understand that the power of these things, that we can decrease apoprotein protein B, um, C-reactive protein, and your bad cholesterol. So I say all that to say is that looking at the specifics to an individual, I've seen people succumb to here to disease. And there's a measure that we track in the acute setting called troponin that lets me know if a person's having a heart attack. I've seen individuals whose numbers are barely abnormal who present and have critical disease. I've seen patients whose numbers are horribly abnormal. And as far as I can tell, the arteries are wide open. So I've learned in life that the the rate, the numbers, the references are just that. It's a reference to really try and provide information to really push you forward in doing the right thing in many instances. But my goal is still the same irrespective, which is a whole food plant-based diet. Great. Thank you. This question is from, from I don't know who it's from, but I'll read it. Maybe the name, oh, Amanda. Um, are you able to speak to LDL known as lipoprotein A specifically, the genetic aspect? I've begun to do some research after receiving my high result of 322. I'm whole food plant-based, 34-year-old female, and my father died of a heart attack at 34. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank, well, thank you so much for that question. We're just coming out of World Health uh, Month in September. And what we understand about uh, familial hypercholesterolemia is what you're referencing, is that when numbers are for LDL, your real true LDL are greater than 190, we know that the risk increases exponentially. And so we understand that it's almost like time under the curve. The longer you're exposed to the detrimental effects of the bad cholesterol, the more likely you are to succumb to atherosclerotic events. And especially when that, that LDL, and so understanding the subfractions, the small dense LDL, 
the apoprotein B, all of these components that are there, and it's saying a familial hypercholesterolemia and saying, how can we lower this? And that sometimes that does require a therapeutic intervention on top of a nutritional therapeutic intervention. And the, so that's one of the key things that I always mention, because think of your body as a, as a neighborhood. The more criminals that you have in the neighborhood, I'm not saying the people you think look like criminals, the real criminals, the more likely you're to have damage inside that area that's there. So your LDL in general may be people that you think look like criminals, but maybe aren't um, among them. You have people that are really criminal, have criminal tendencies to them. And so you need to be able to identify those. And the longer you're exposed in that community, the more likely you are to have an adverse event. And so that's why it's so important to bring that number down and be screened. I actually was just lecturing about this inside of my hospital setting about the fact we have to do a much better job in terms of, of identifying individuals who are at risk and really impacting them. And this is a side note, Chef AJ, that becomes important. We always are quick to vilify the docs out there who give medications and, and medications only. So I'm going to take a little sidebar for a second. So I have a patient who I encouraged and we made incredible transformative uh, changes in his life dropped his cholesterol down. He lost tons of weight. He was doing so well. His wife was batch cooking. They were following you, doing so well. He fell off the map and quit following. And I saw him back and he gained, regained all of his weight, if not more. He fell off the wagon and his numbers were through the roof high. And I told him, I said, you know, I said, I'll tell you, this is the reason why many docs will recommend medications in combination to make sure you have some level of safeguard that's there. You have to recognize that just because you feel okay doesn't mean that you're okay. That there is disease that your body is constantly at warfare between illness and wellness. And you have to look at your medications, your lifestyle as a therapeutic intervention every single moment of every single day and ask yourself, what is your impression? What do you want? I want to be healthy. I don't want to have this event. Then what's your plan? Your plan is I'm prepping. I'm food prepping. My plan is I'm killing the plan. When I don't have, when I'm in a situation where I do not have access to healthy eating, what is going to be my option? Well, I'm going to find it. I'm going to go to a grocery store. I'm going to get salad. I'm going to bring my, my Instapot with me. I'm going to do what I need to do in order so for me to live the life I want to live. So slight sidebar with that, but I think it's so imperative for folks to understand about the importance of using their food as a therapeutic intervention. And it's not just solely for enjoyment. It is a therapeutic intervention at a certain point in life. Thanks. Appreciate that. This is from Peter Ann. And the question is, I've always been an exerciser. During the pandemic, I was diagnosed with an illness that makes me immunocompromised. Since the pandemic, I've stayed out of gyms and done little exercise. What is the best way for a person who has not been exercising for a period of time to begin again? Where should I start? Any suggestions would be appreciated. Yeah, no, great question. I think simple, keeping it simple. At baseline, what I would say is walking is a wonderful, easy tool, right? Just to get back going. I think that it's always important, as long as you don't have other risk factors in terms of ongoing chest discomfort or known blockages or things of that nature in your heart, 
you may not have to go and get a major exam done to get you primed for it. If you have any concerns or diabetes, I maybe would just check in with your doctor. Other than that, simply walking is the easiest. The other thing I always advocate is just getting neat with it. Non-exercise activity thermogenesis, moving around, fidgeting, walking, standing, all these things are basic fundamentals. Pulling the weeds out in the lawn, carrying your, your laundry basket up the stairs or around, standing while you're folding clothes. These are all fun, uh, forms of functional activity where your body is metabolizing energy and it's beneficial to your body overall. You can imagine when you're pulling weeds, you're squatting, you're doing a uh, uh, resistance training, you're pulling up. So the, all these things are just extrapolations that we do in the gym of what we do in, in, in rural life. But modern life, you're right, we sit all day and we don't do any of these things that we should be doing. What do you do for exercise, Dr. Batiste? Uh, well, I understand the fact that we lose, we have sarcopenia, which means we lose muscle as we get older. So it's extremely important to incorporate resistance training into the regimen. So I do resistance training. I do things that are going to challenge me in a short period of time. Um, so I do, I go on double dates with uh, some of the trainers from Peloton. <laughs> I will go for a walk real quick um, on the treadmill while I'm kind of listening to you or, or listening to a, a, a recent article, things of that nature um, that's here. So then that way, the time doesn't seem as if, man, I'm just walking, walking, walking. It's very productive in those moments. So those are easy ways that I do it. And then I try and adopt the neat approach. Right. Thank you. This question also from anonymous, a different anonymous. My husband who is 68 years old passed his treadmill exercise stress echocardium test, but has a high calcium score greater than 700 and genetic risk factors for heart events. He has reduced his LDL cholesterol 30% to a current score of 95 by eating vegan and very low SOS. Is it reasonable for him to achieve an LDL score of 55 or lower through lifestyle and supplements or are statins realistically needed to get the LDL score down that low? He would prefer to avoid statins if possible, but is open to taking them if that is a better option. But are the numbers that important? Because I, I remember Dr. Esselstyn saying, you don't die in the numbers, you know? Yeah, so everyone's an individual. So one of the things that becomes important is that if your, your husband has a calcium score, that's not normal. But what is his atherosclerotic cardiovascular risk score? And that's a risk calculator that everyone can download on their, on their uh, phone. That will give an idea, uh, an idea with their blood pressure, your blood sugar, if you're diabetic, what your numbers are for your cholesterol, and it calculates your score. If your score is above seven and a half, the standard medical practice is going to recommend uh, um, additional therapies. I typically, in patients who are not are guarded and don't want to, I'm looking at things like C-reactive protein and others. But the fact that the cholesterol level, the LDL is below 95, if your husband has not had an event, there is not a clear indication based on our guidelines currently that he would need to be on a statin therapy, right? That's number one. Uh, the other thing that I would look at is I would look at incorporating other, other avenues, you know, maybe some AMLA into your diet on top of, you know, your fiber is increased already. <clears throat> Making sure the quantity and the diversity of your fiber is still there. So when I mentioned the portfolio diet before, that's soluble and soluble fibers, that's going to be a mixture of things like your oats, it's going to be your beans, it's gonna be your tofu, it's going to be your berries, it's gonna be some flax. Those are gonna be some of the things that really were shown in David Jenkins' study to help lower that cholesterol values uh, there significantly and very similarly. Now, 
uh, Baxter Montgomery did great work in Houston, small number of patients, but really looked at putting patients on a raw diet combined with very, very intentional whole food plant-based um, that was there, no uh, unrefined, uh, no refined products at all, and were able to really drop and diminish exponentially all of those inflammatory uh, markers. So C-reactive protein, LP little A, <clears throat> excuse me, APO protein B are all additional markers. But when I'm, if I'm hearing, if your husband has not had an event, at a score of 90, 95, he doesn't technically need to be on the statin. Yeah. I'll never forget when you interviewed Dr. Baxter Montgomery on this show, and you guys started talking about your, your first names, Columbus and Baxter, which are not common names. And he told the story yeah. about how uh, the, the mother wanted to name him something else. And the father called her at the hospital and said, name him Baxter or don't bring him home. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great one. That's a great one. Oh, I thought that was funny. I don't know if you know the answer to this. I'm from Julia. Do you know how nitric oxide levels compare in sprouts versus fully grown greens? Mm, I do not know offhand. My, my reflex from like probably perusing things in the past would probably say dark leaf, green leafy vegetables will probably have a higher degree of dietary nitrates. Um, but I don't know for sure. I haven't reviewed that recently. But I would tend to say, and here's the thing, doesn't matter. Both are going to be great for you. Eat them both. <laughs> That's going to be your best thing is have them both. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Let me, uh, yeah, you, you always get this question when it's a cardiologist. This is from uh, Ted. Coffee, yay or nay? <laughs> you know, coffee has been a lot of back and forth, right? And so, Coffee has been shown to be rich in antioxidants and perhaps in its natural form, not to have tremendous detrimental effects. The problem is obviously the mixture of the, the sugar and the fat that people add to coffee is the most problematic components of it. I'll be honest with you. Um, there's been a lot as it relates to the, the, the propensity towards arrhythmias and palpitations and so forth. Um, some say suggesting that yes, it does contribute. Others saying that it doesn't. I tend to recommend my patients who suffer with any type of electrical issues or what we call arrhythmias, I would steer them away from it. Other thing we have to realize that coffee also dehydrates you. It makes you urinate and lose free water, which means that it can make you dehydrate. So you have to make sure that your ingestion of fluids is ideal. Also, we know too as well is it impedes and impacts your sleep. And so, which, so it's a domino effect. And so um, we have to be very careful and, and aware of our consumption of coffee. Last, I'll say this, the one part that troubles me with coffee at times, um, and you know, I'm, I'm not saying I've never had coffee or anything of that sort, but it's the fact that coffee, what happens to people when they don't drink coffee? <laughs> they get they angry, right? Uh, and they, they can't have a headache. They, yeah. yeah. And so we have to be very aware of the fact of things that really drive us and we become addicted to it. Um, so I think if you don't have to start coffee, do not start it. <laughs> Get your antioxidants from somewhere else. If you have coffee, for sure, don't add heavy cream to it and sugar. It's going to be your best bet with things. Great. This is a question from Keisha. <clears throat> is it okay for someone with high cholesterol to eat cashews and nut butters? <laughs> um, I think that's going to be problematic. So we know those are going to be very calorie dense foods, right? 
And there are many times the nut butters will have plenty of oil and sugar added to it as well. And so that can become problematic. There is some suggestion that it may increase your, um, your cholesterol. So you have to be very careful with that. Um, is it, you know, because every food that may not be, that may be healthy, right, doesn't mean it's very calorie dense. And so it depends upon what your overall picture is. If you're a person who maybe have suffered with a weight and you may have a, a degree of elevated cholesterol, a small degree of blood pressure, once again, what I call metabolic syndrome, you have to be careful. And I would probably steer you away in the early phase from having lots of, uh, of nuts and, and nut butters. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I don't, I'm embarrassed to even admit this. This was a long time ago, guys, but I, before I was even vegan, but I used to sometimes give my dog, you know, uh, uh, as a treat, a certain thing from a certain fast food restaurant that I won't mention. And it just so happens that the next day he had to go to the vet and he got his cholesterol test and the vet said he had never seen a cholesterol that high in a dog. So I'm thinking if it could do that to a dog, you know, junk food, you know, fast food, imagine what it's doing to everybody else's arteries, right? Yeah. Yep. This is from Joanne. Do you agree that it's better for overall health and longevity to have high have blood pressure in the higher range, like 140 over 90, than to take medicine to maintain a normal blood pressure in the 112 over 73 range? So I no, I I can't say that I agree with that per se. Um, it's better for your blood pressure, of course, to be lower naturally. Right. So without the medication, we understand medications all carry with them some level of side effect um, with them. And so the more you're able to accomplish in terms of there's enough studies overall that tell us that it's 120 over 80 is not normal. And you threw out a great number. Less than 120 over 80 is more of an ideal number for us for reducing cardiovascular events. But most importantly, the risk in terms of heart failure. I'll give you a personal example. Um, so a friend of mine where I was coaching him on his blood pressure because um, he was between insurances at a moment and really having him aggressively adopt whole food plant-based or as close as he can get to it and his blood pressure normalized, he's on meds. And so he said, oh, you know, I'm doing okay. He kind of moved away from the diet, uh, not as much. And so now fast forward, what's my greatest concern with elevated blood pressure is heart failure and kidney failure. His kidneys have really declined. And so I recently found out about his kidneys declining, despite the fact that his numbers were fairly, quote unquote, controlled around the 140. So we have to be very careful um, about this. This is an area of very serious concern. This is how my wife dad died as a result of kidney failure due from high blood pressure. And so I, I'm a strong advocate of making sure those numbers are low, but also making sure that your nutrition matches it. You can't substitute the nutrition for the medications. And we can't, and if, you're, if your numbers are still high, on an individual basis, you might be able to get by with it. But the large studies, once again, these large population studies suggest you're not going to get by with the blood pressure that's elevated for prolonged periods of time. Great, thanks. Uh, Marie would like to know about... <laughs> Uh, blood tests for lipids. She has borderline high lipid panels and wondered whether then whether fasting for too long on the day of the test can affect the test results. Um, the pathology slip says to fast between eight and 12 hours. However, she eats dinner early 
like six o'clock. And by the time the blood tests the next morning, it's more like 14 hours of fasting. Uh, any help with how to get lipids in normal range? She's been whole food plant-based for more than a year, but lipid panels remain essentially the same. Yeah. So fasting, start first with the first question. Fasting really doesn't, our tests now currently don't really impact, fasting doesn't impact it tremendously. We know that if your triglycerides are very high above 400, because of the testing, it uses triglycerides in a calculation to come up with the LDL. But if you're doing well otherwise, um, excuse me, if your number, those numbers are very abnormal, we're able to gather the information that we need from it. Now, being specific in terms of, once again, the issue of like when to take meds versus when not, I think the question really begs to understand the complete profile, what your atherosclerotic risk score is. Ask your doc to calculate your risk first. <clears throat> calculate C. Then next is personalize it. Do you have yet, are you still in menopause or do you have early menopause, inflammatory issues, prior cardiac events, uh, family history, things of that nature? The next level is to reassess and that's through calcium scoring. And so that's where the CPR comes in in trying to reassess through calcium scoring to kind of get a sense of where you're at. I've seen patients uh, who are extremely whole food plant-based their LDL was very high. Their total cholesterol was high. Their LPLA was high. Um, but I said, let's check your C-reactive protein. It was, it was normal. I said, let's check your um, calcium score. And it was zero. Her calcium score was zero for her. And what that allowed me to do is to reclassify her and say, no, you don't need statin and put that clearly in her chart that she did not. So it is a very involved process and you have to have a clinician who is aware of all the tools that are available to them to really personalize it for you. Thanks so much. Uh, this is from Christine and she says that she's 59 year old woman who struggled with weight and food addiction from the time she was little. And on July 3rd of this year, after a um, she had a diagnosis of coronary artery disease. And she wants to know about adding a pinch of iodized salt to cooked breakfast vegetables to avoid iodine deficiency. She's not a fan of salt but she wants to know how can she get the iodine she needs without adding salt. And I, I apologize. I uh, My phone went out for a second. I didn't hear the majority of that, that question. Oh, I apologize. Okay. Um, she, she's diagnosed with coronary artery disease at age 59, struggled with weight and food addiction. She's not a fan of salt in or on her food, but she's wondering how she can get the iodine she needs without adding salt. So she's been adding a pinch of iodized salt to her cooked breakfast vegetables. Got it. Got it. And so has she, have you had, have, I guess the question I would have back and I didn't realize I can't have a dialogue with her is, <laughs> <how> she, is, <laughs> is she aware that she has deficiency in iodine or that there is a concern? Number one is one of the first things that I have for her in terms of a pinch of salt. It really depends upon the, the, what she has running with her cardiovascular disease. Does she have, if she's completely, so here's where I stand with people as they progress is that, um, I would rather you be no salt, no sugar, and no oil. And I believe the fact that you're going to have all the components that you need. If testing for you specifically identifies an area of deficiency, then that's where we would look at perhaps supplementation in that particular instance. Um, on a practical level, for I have a person who's struggling and they just say to me, I cannot eat it. Like I just saw a patient and he had critical disease. His wife has transformed his diet and she's just like, he doesn't want to eat and he's just lost weight because there's no salt. I said, fine, here's what we're gonna go ahead and do. You're completely unprocessed. You're not getting it in boxes or cans or anything else like that. I said, fine, you know, it needs to be measured. 
and I don't, I don't believe in the pinch business. I want actual tangible objective measurements so you know precisely, you understand what you're doing. But in ideal situations, we know that the salt still does impair the endothelium. The salt does impact the body more than just fluid retention. There is a, a vast mechanism of action of how the salt impairs the body. So I tend to stay away from it if I can um, for patients overall. Great, thank you. It sounds in this case that she's just trying to avoid it. And there are ways to get iodine, like from kelp I hear and things like yep. that. Great, yep. thank you. Joy says, her mother passed eight years ago from congestive heart failure. What causes congestive heart failure? In addition to a plant-based diet, would you have any other suggestions on how to avoid this? Yeah, so um, uh, congestive heart failure can either be from a too strong of a heart muscle, we call it diastolic, um, dysfunction. Think of Arnold Schwarzenegger at his height, um, that his he wasn't probably very flexible, very limber, right? Um, so your muscle can be too thick and it can be rigid and that can cause heart failure symptoms, which means shortness of breath or fluid retention in the legs. The other one is when the heart muscle becomes weak and, flat, and flaccid or flabby um, and it doesn't contract real well. Many instances, both can be caused by high blood pressure, coronary artery disease, all the things that we traditionally talk about. Sometimes it can be some other um, non-typical type of factors that where docs have to really dig in and figure out, but those are the most common that are there. So prevention of it is really about preventing diabetes, preventing cardiovascular disease, lowering blood pressure and cholesterol is really the, the targeted approach. It's interesting how many people are asking today about omega-3. Elise says, supposedly a low omega-3 index is associated with sudden cardiac death. Is there any truth to that? And what do you consider too low? So there's been a wide range of thoughts as it relates to omega omegas and their relationship to sudden death, um, either replacement or the, the values. And so I'll be honest, the jury is still out for a large degree. What we know is that the fish oils, definitely there, we, we should not be doing the fish oils for it. And so you want them in your, their natural form um, too as well, which means the, the um, that the, like you mentioned in terms of from, from omega, excuse me, from uh, flax and from chia and so forth for the omega threes. So I'm not adeptly aware of specific research looking at the the levels, measured levels in the bloodstream on large scale to denote risk of sudden death. I've seen it as it relates to supplementation um, and looked at that literature fairly extensively. Thank you, Jackie. Says, what is your uh what do you feel about blood pressure medication for someone who's whole food plant-based, perfectly healthy, excellent cholesterol, all numbers, except running high blood pressure with stress? She's had several family members with strokes, so she worries she doesn't want to be on any meds. Um, the doctor prescribed bistolic, which is a beta blocker for high blood pressure and anxiety. Uh, but Dr. McDougall once said, if your blood pressure gets too low for medication, you can have a stroke. So I'm so confused. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's one is I would recommend that you measure your blood pressure at home and make sure you have a reliable blood pressure machine um, that gives the most consistent trends. And we know if that's the most beneficial, that will be able to, to most effectively assess your risk. I think after that, because on occasion I've seen individuals whose blood pressure is markedly low at home, elevated inside the office, both pretend the level of risk that's there that we kind of identify. And it's an individual basis. So on large scale, like I mentioned before with the fire, uh, prior question, we want your blood pressure in the range in which it is um, less than 120. What's too low? 
too low is it's a more complex term. And when patients ask me this, I say it's it's hard because I calculate what's called your mean arterial pressure. That gives me a sense. So the numbers don't always pretend if your pressures are too low, your symptoms associated with it tell me whether or not it's too low. If you're lightheaded, if you're lethargic, if you're tired and fatigued and your numbers are on the lower side, I'm concerned at that point. Other than that, I'm looking to make sure you have adequate perfusion pressure from your head to your toes. And that's a, a number in which I call them, we look at called the mean arterial pressure that gives me that, that uh, information. Great, thank you. Okay, I wanna respect your time. So you've pretty much done all the pre-submitted questions. If you wanna take a few from the chat, you can, but you don't have to, because I understand you're in an unusual situation here doing car, car, cardi car, <laughs> you're yeah. doing cardiology, get it? <laughs> Look at you. <laughs> Look at you. Yeah, I, I do have to go, but I want to ask you a question and so sure. forth. Uh, this being your 1700 show, what's been, and I like to think of it in terms of like the age of enlightenment. And so you've enlightened so many people inside your 1700 shows. I want to know what has been your greatest, what have you learned the most from show one to show 1700, your top three things that you've learned? Let's go out on that. All right, great. One is to, it's more important to listen than to talk, you know, uh, because it, it's just, and th that's, that's really one of the best things I've learned. Um, let's see. Well, be kind, you know, because there's times that, I, I mean, not that I, I want to ever be in a position, but, but there have been a few times where my feathers have been ruffled. And then part of me wants to like, and then, you know, that's never good. That's never good. So give, give the guests the benefit of the doubt and maybe deal with it later if there's something that, that gets you a little bit upset. And um, I think that everybody has a story. Everybody has something worth sharing. You know, a lot of people say, well, can I be on your show? I don't like when people call themselves nobodies because everybody's a somebody to somebody, right? And, and I think that there's something to be learned from everyone. And of course, you know, the famous New York Times bestselling authors get the most views, but you can learn just as much from somebody in a small town doing their best to make their life better than you can from the most famous person. So, I, and that's why I almost like to interview them better because I find them in times, you know, more interesting. Yes. I love it. I love it. I love it. No, that's, those are very wise words of wisdom right there. You know, that was uh, the first one that you said, or when you said about listening, I'll tell you what someone, my uh, attending told me once in training. He said, Columbus, let me tell you something. Never answer a question until you know what you're being asked. And I said, what? Everyone knows that. But how many people are so quick to respond and jump in and they don't quite know what question they're being asked, right? And it's because we're more concerned about hearing our own voice than we are about understanding what other people really, what's the root of what they're trying to get to and their, their question that they're asking. So I think listening is so important. There's more there's more, uh, I think there's more questions than there are answers in this world in many instances. Yeah, so. well, you, you're a great interviewer. And guys, third, third Sunday of the month, Dr. Batiste interviews some of the most interesting people that maybe you haven't heard of. And if you haven't checked those episodes out, there's at least six or nine already on this channel. Yeah, yeah, no, well, definitely. It's, it's always fun being on with you. I'm sorry about the uh, situation oh, for today, but we'll I, have to do this live, live one without the... Uh, the Absolutely. stressful circumstances again. But you really are a or this live live Q and A rather. Yeah, live you really are a cardiologist now. <laughs> yeah. This. <laughs> <laughs> and th thank you to your son for being the the uh, the chauffeur. 
Oh, no, absolutely. I, and I will ask one favor for you in the future is that, and this is something I started to, to kind of put in if I was all sit, sitting down, I'm just remembering, is I want my own song one of these days. Oh, I want that's... a Chef AJ to make oh, I can uh, do a that. Columbus. I, yeah, so I mean, I don't do it now. The next yeah. time we're on live, I want you to come up with a song okay. for me. I mean, you know, all I right. know it won't be as good as the number one hit Yankee, Yankee McDougal, <laughs> but I mean, you got to give me, I want something. Okay, I had one for Esselstyn, but it got him embarrassed, so I had to stop singing. I can do that. That is something <laughs> I can do. I, I rise to the challenge. Thank you so much, Dr. Batiste. All right. It's good seeing you. Same here. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow at 11 a.m. Pacific time for Healing Spices with Dr. Sunil Pai. Take care, everyone.